If you have a Bible with you, please open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 62. Isaiah 62. It's a treat for me to be here. Eric, thank you uh, for inviting me. I'm an outsider now, and so I can say things that you guys can't say. Um, I know you probably don't ever want a a man to be praised in your church. I'm sorry, but make an exception. You're one of the men who follow in his train, Eric. And... uh, I'm uh, full of admiration for you. I hope you know that. And it's very appropriate for us to say congratulations to you. God has done this. I'm sure you know the weakness of your gifts, the limits of what you've done. You can recount the harm that you've done to this church plant. But God has used you to do this. And uh, it's a big deal. And I hope you feel encouraged. And uh, Nathan... Godfather, Pope of uh, the Oregon Mission, you should too. Feel encouraged. God has heard your prayers. He's answered your zeal, the things he's caused you to love and care about. He's answering in your lifetime. And uh, that's a great thing to enjoy. I hope you enjoy it tonight. We don't get a lot of victory laps in the Presbyterian Church and especially in the Oregon Mission. Um, My friend Brian Sunderland, wherever he went, has the uh, lovely metaphor for the work of the Oregon Mission and church planning. He says it's like D-Day that the first landing craft arrives uh, in the shores and drops the gate, and the soldiers are immediately shot and killed. And then the next wave, pick up the flag, jump into the water, and are immediately shot and killed. And then the next wave picks up the flag out of the water and gets to the edge of the surf, and they're immediately shot and killed. And so the kingdom grows, and so the Oregon mission goes forward. And it's you don't know it, but it's harder here. It's... uh, oxygen is uh, thinner or something. It's hard here, and it's a big deal that God's done this for you, for his kingdom, and for his son in Hillsborough, and it's fun to celebrate that and think about what he's going to do here. So I'm excited to be here. I want us to look at Isaiah 62 just as an uh, uh, indulgence in God's love for his church. He says the most beautiful things here about his church, surprising things about his church as we know it, but uh, Good for us to see and latch on to as we celebrate what he's done and anticipate what he's going to do here. Think about God's uh, ambitions and intentions for his church and what he's going to do for her. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll read together Isaiah 62. Father, thank you so much for letting us be here tonight to celebrate your son, uh, to celebrate the spread of his fame in the world and this new outpost of his kingdom in Hillsborough, Oregon. Thank you for the lives that you have been at work in to make this happen, uh, for the zeal of those who've led it. Um, Thank you for the uh, new converts who've come in to your kingdom in this place and those who will. Uh, Please help us tonight as we consider your word. Let us see some of your love for your church. Give us a glimpse of that. Give us the kind of hopes for her that you have and the kind of delight in her that you have. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. 
and you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, or my delight is in her, and your land called Beulah, or married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. Foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates and prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway and clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Got a golf analogy, and I'm not ashamed. Um, Bobby Jones, a great golfer from Atlanta. Um, First time he ever saw the old course at St. Andrews, the home of golf, said it looked like a cow pasture to him. He couldn't believe anybody would like the course. He said, who designed this course anyway? And the people he was playing with said, well, a glacier did 15,000 years ago. (laughs) It's been here. He said, people have been playing golf here since when they believed the world was flat. He got frustrated with the course, he didn't like it, he got stuck in a uh, bunker, tried three times to get out of it on the 11th hole and he couldn't, tore up his scorecard and walked in, in a little fit of pick. And uh, later, at least in the Disney version of it, uh, Harry Varden, who was the great uh, gaffer and golfer, stopped by his room and he said, yes, uh, uh, the old course beat you up today, didn't she? Well, that's her duty, but don't give up on her. Don't give up on her. Joan said that the course was, uh, he thought, the worst course he'd ever seen when he first played it. But later in his life, he says, I don't know why I couldn't see it before, but this place is beautiful. And when he was asked if he had one course he could play, and only that course for the rest of his life, he said it would be the old course at St. Andrews. He finally could see what he couldn't see at first, the beauty the richness, the desirability of that golf course. Now, I'm going to try to spin that to say we should think the same way about the church, that we don't see much about her that's impressive, and the difference being that the old course was already beautiful and Jones just couldn't see it, and the church isn't already beautiful, but she's going to be. She's going to be. And we're supposed to latch ourselves on to the affection that God has for the church, and we're supposed to advocate for this beautiful thing that she's going to become under God's influence in his work. And that's what he describes in this uh, prediction, this prophecy in Isaiah 62 of of the beauty that God is going to bring to his people. Uh, Not just Israel being brought back into the promised land, but all the promises 
of the nations being blessed and fixed, the whole world being set back right through the seed of Abraham, the son, the great king, David's greater son who would come, Jesus Christ, who would fix the world. So I want us to look at uh, the church tonight in light of what God says she's going to be. And the first thing that I want us to point out is that she's not there yet. I'm not trying to say that the church is so beautiful you should recognize that, latch on to her and love her for it. Because the church isn't impressive. Right? And in our day, I mean, we're most of us in the church and have a hard time really loving the church. And certainly people outside the church hold her in, in a lot of disregard. Right? The church is not admired where we live. Uh, plenty of detractors. But he says here, for Zion's sake, in verse 1, I'll not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I'll not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. She's not there yet. And it's not hard at all to find people's complaints about the church. They look at the scandals in the church, the embarrassing things that we've done. They look at the weakness of the church, the politicization of the church, the self-righteousness of the church. And it's easy to make an indictment against the church and to say, you know, I like Jesus, but I'd rather not have anything to do with the church. God never really gives us that option, though, right? He's The church is always uh, the focus of his affection and the means by which he plans to fix the world. The church is plan A, there's not a plan B, is what we see when we look at what he says about it. And uh, it's hard for us. It's hard for Christians even to stay invested in the church very often. I think if you could go somewhere beautiful and worship God, feel close to him in nature, not have to deal with the ugliness of the church, not have to deal with tedious people, not have to deal with conflict, not have to repent. It would be lovely, but God intends for us to know him through the church, and he intends to fix the world through the church. We sing about it, always have, with a fearful wonder men see her sore oppressed by schism run asunder and heresies distressed. And though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale against or foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. What we believe about the church. Uh, we're not romantic or naive about the church, but we believe that God has said he's going to make her beautiful. He's going to take delight in her. He loves her. If you look in verse 2, he says, the nations are going to see this eventually. They'll see your righteousness. The kings will see your glory, and you'll be called by a new name. The mouth of the Lord will give a crown of beauty in his hand, a royal diadem in his hand. No more forsaken, no more desolate, but you'll be called Hephzibah. Sounds like something Costa would name one of his kids. And uh, sorry. And uh, you'll be called Beulah. Uh, my delight is in her, married. He loves her. So it's hard to think with what, all the things we've seen that God's made, the beauty of what He's made, that it's the church that is, is, is His delight. I would never have predicted that. Those of you who've been around the church long as I have too, probably wouldn't either. You'd say, really, the church, of all things, that God chooses to be his delight, that he gushes over in a passage like this. You think, wow, makes me want to look at the church in a new light because I don't, I don't see her that way. We have to learn to see the church for what she will be instead of what she is just now and invest ourselves in her for what she will be instead of what she is right now. And the language here is marriage language. You know, he says that um, 
The church is a bride. In verse 5 it says, As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And when you get married, I think the general conception in the world is you try to get as pretty as you can be, as handsome as you can be, so you can find the best person you can to marry, and then you try after that to manage the deterioration. You know, you're never going to really look as good as you did on your wedding day. Things are never going to be as happy. Your wife's never going to like you as much as she did that day. But you just, you're thinking, I'm just going to manage this and ride it out as long as I can. Hopefully we'll make it all the way. And, uh, but Christians, when they think about marriage, have a different uh, perspective on this because Christians are told that their spouse is one day going to be perfect morally, that there, there's going to be a sinless version of your spouse one day in heaven, the new creation, that the mercy that's begun in their lives through Jesus Christ is going to have the result that one day they're going to be the ideal version of themselves. And Christian spouses are basically told, you're going to be the one who sees that in your spouse for the rest of your life. You're going to be the one who holds this picture of not what they were when you married them, but who they're going to be when Jesus marries them in your mind. And you're going to be the advocate for that picture of your spouse. And so instead of a deterioration that you manage, it's a preparation for heaven that you manage in the life of your spouse, that you're trying to be the advocate for who they're going to be. And so when you take your vows, you don't just say, I feel exceptionally loving toward you right now, but you say, I promise that I'm going to love you and advocate for you going forward um, for as long as we both live together. I'm going to be your advocate that way. Now, that's how God marries the church. Right? He makes these promises to us. What I've started in you through the mercy of my son, I'm going to finish. I'm going to make you a worthy bride for my son. And I'm going to advocate for that, and I'm going to keep seeing that in you and keep advocating for it. So the passage we read in Ephesians 5 earlier that talks about uh, God's love for the church says that he's going to make his church to have splendor. I mean, I know a lot of people that like their churches, but I hardly ever hear people use the word splendor to describe their church. The idea that it's without spot or wrinkle or blemish, that it's beautiful and perfect and desirable. Usually they say, well, our church, you know, it, it could be worse. You know, it's okay. There's a lot of good things there, and, but there's a lot of stuff that's embarrassing too. And some people I'd rather you not talk to. Some people I want you to talk to soon. You know, but church is church. It's okay. When God talks about the church, he gushes. He uses language that's over the top because he sees her for what she's going to be. Feels like a Cinderella story a little bit of the unlikely one becoming the desired one, but it's more of a Beauty and the Beast story, really. It's the love that God has that beautifies us. He doesn't just see what others don't see in us and reward us uh, for our deep down goodness that was hidden to the world, but He loves us in a way that transforms us from being beasts into being beautiful. He doesn't pick the cream of the crop to be His church, He acts out in mercy to bring trophies of his grace to him, to be a bride for his son. So we need to latch on to his advocacy for the church. The church has plenty of detractors, and they've got a lot of legitimate things to say, but that's not supposed to be us. And especially you men who are being ordained as elders tonight, uh, you have a special role to be the advocates for the church. He says, he talks about the watchman in verse 6 and 7. He says, I've put 
watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, all the day, all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. It's one of the big jobs elders have is to pray for the church and to pray that God would make her the beautiful bride for his son that he intends to, to be her advocate. Uh, all of us latch onto that as well, our, that advocacy, but elders especially carry it. And that'll be your job in some ways to hold out for the congregation this picture of the church and her beauty. Uh, to say, look, the way she is now isn't the way she'll always be. It's worth sticking in with her. It's worth uh, fighting the good fight, dealing with uh, the difficulties and the people. So, um, God's not necessarily going to use you in an impressive way that the world sees. You know, when you, you advocate for his church to be beautified and for the, all the kings and nations to see it and bring their wealth to it and all that, who knows how he's going to use you. But he's promised to make his church beautiful, and he's placed you here to advocate for it. He may use you in dramatic ways. He may not use you in dramatic ways. But you're a part of the big mission. And your prayer should reflect it. You should be ambitious when you pray. Uh, not just for small domestic concerns, but to pray for the church in uh, her broad sense, her beauty. To pray that God would open doors to the gospel for new people in this place. That people in Hillsborough would come to faith in Christ and find themselves in church, worshiping Jesus and wondering how it ever happened. I mean, these should be your prayers, and that's what you should lead your congregation to pray as watchmen on the walls. Um, God's not really very often given to giving big people to his church. You know, he doesn't use stars in his church very often. He uses faithful people who trust him and his power and give him credit. And that's what he's given to you in this church. So let your aspirations be big because God's love for the church is big and his hopes for the church are big. The rest of you, the members, are going to take a vow tonight, sort of a, a reaffirmation of your vows to the church, in which you say you will be zealous for the peace and purity of the church. Zealous for the peace and purity of the church. And usually when we say that, we're, we're thinking defensively. Like, I promise I'm really not going to be a complainer all the time. I promise I'm not going to gossip and ruin the relationships in the church all the time. I promise that I'm going to not introduce heresies into the church and undermine the thing. Peace and purity of the church, I'll be good. Best I can, I'll be good. But there's a positive side to pursuing the peace and purity of the church as well, and it's an advocacy to say the peace of the church is her beauty, uh, the shalom of God experience. I'm going to be the advocate for that in the church. I'm going to praise it where I see it. I'm going to stir it up where it's latent. I'm going to go after the peace and purity of the church, not just in a defensive way, but offensive way, to be an advocate for the church to love her. I'm going to be careful with how I handle the church. I think this is God's son's fiance, and I'm going to be respectful of her. And if I have to say critical things about her, I'm going to, I'm going to be heartbroken when I say those hurtful things about her. And I'm going to say those uh, with an attitude of taking the log out of my own eye and say, look, this is, uh, if this church is a mess, it's probably mostly because of me. And uh, I hate that because I know how much he loves her. All right, that's the, being zealous for the peace and purity of the church that you take as a vow. Uh, urge that on you. See it as, with all the detractors the church has in the world that you're going to be her advocate, that you're going to be her advocate. Say it more negatively. Don't think 
that the way to cozy up to Jesus and to make him like you more is to criticize his fiance. Right? I know that wouldn't work for me, right? If you badmouth Julie, <laughs> you don't win my favor. And uh, this is his bride. It's his bride. It may surprise you that he chose her, but it's his bride. Um, do you know what a quadra or a centris or a performa is? See, your church isn't so geeky. Um, the, uh, these were Apple's answer in 1996 to the PC. I figured I could use a positive Apple analogy because I think they use Intel chips now, don't they? Okay, all right, good. These were horrible responses to the PC that were confusing and didn't sell well and left Apple in the real doldrums around 1996. People were saying, well, they're cute for games, right? If you want to play games, you could get an Apple. That's probably nicer. Um, it's kind of the Betamax of computers, though. It's, it's, it's going out. Uh, nobody's advocating for Apple computers. Do you wish you had bought Apple stock at that time in 1996? Um, the only way you could have bought Apple stock in 1996 is if you saw something that other people didn't see. All right, if you saw what was coming, you didn't see. Nobody saw that. Maybe Steve Jobs did. But Isaiah is telling you something that not everybody sees in this passage. He's telling you about God's intentions and aspirations and will for the church, that he is going to make her beautiful. So as you invest in her, as you reinvest in her tonight, what you're doing is wise. It's wise and it's beautiful. It's very well worth it. Now let's pray. Father, thank you for including us in your church. Um, we realize that the reason people complain about the church is because there are people like us in it. But we believe that you can change people like us and that you can make your church beautiful. And we pray that in this local expression of it in Hillsborough at Ascension Presbyterian Church, that you would create beauty, that the world would see and take note and say what a great God you are and what a great Savior your Son is because he loves these people so well, that people would be magnetized by that to come and put their faith in Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.